Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry, for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, a bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome. Yeah! Achievement-oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast, part of the Woo! Ringer Podcast Network. I am Ben Lindbergh, writer for TheRinger.com, yeah. and on the other line, an extremely excited and enthusiastic Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason. Hello. Later Jason. in this episode, we've got a couple guests lined up. We'll be talking to Stacy Ponder. She's a writer for Kotaku and elsewhere, talking to her about the notorious game Night Trap, which just got a re-release on its 25th anniversary. Also talking to her about horror games and Resident Evil ports. And in just a moment, we'll be talking to our colleague, Victor Lukerson, who spent an entire day with the SNES Classic, which in theory is out today. But another thing that is out just before we started talking, the Red Dead Redemption trailer. You and I both watched it. I know that you were not bowled over by Red Dead Redemption 2. I mean, first of all, let's recap Red Dead, the original. What were your thoughts? Were you in the camp that believed that this was the game of the generation, all-time classic? Because I was, I kind of feel like I'm the low man on Red Dead sometimes. Like, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I finished it. I don't think of it with the same fondness, I think, that a lot of people do. I don't look back at it as an exalted classic so much as... A good open world game. Uh, I loved. I loved it. Okay. I really did love it. I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, killing the last buffalo on the plane was one of, and I've talked about this plenty of times, but it was one of the saddest moments in video games and a true moment of regret. Mm. Like one of those moments in a video game where I was like, I kind of wish I didn't do that. Yeah. I kind of wish I had let them go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it was a formative video game experience for me. I. I Really, really, really enjoyed it, you know, and it was, I mean, I've played the um, backwards compatible version on Xbox One. Mm. It's just as beautiful as ever. Like yeah, I love the world. Riding, yeah. it's great. Like riding your horse and then seeing the city kind of appear, the town kind of appear like in the valley in the distance yes. is, still holds the power that it always did. It's yeah. great. Yeah, great world. Very beautiful. I, I wasn't into the story, I guess. I didn't find it. The ending, yeah, but a lot of it was just John Marston just kind of talking and talking as I would ride a horse from one place to another. And honestly, I can't really remember the specifics of the story that well. And Red Dead 2 is a prequel. And I would say that on the whole, I'm out on prequels. That's It's not a blanket statement. I, I like Star Trek Discovery. That's a prequel. But on the whole, I think prequels have a heavy lift in some cases because yeah. you're starting with the most exciting part of the story and then you're going back and telling something that came before and that is not always quite as exciting. You have to find things to to say even though people know what is coming after. You have to find ways to build suspense. It's something that I know you've thought a lot about with the Thrones prequels, the several of yes. them that are in the works. I thought you were going to say with NBA 2K18, <laughs> I thought a lot about how to build suspense. Yeah, that too. So we watched the trailer. The initial reaction I saw was largely very positive. People psyched about this game, which is coming out next spring. I was not blown away. Neither were you. I mean... Granted, I don't really put that much stock into trailers regardless. Like, I'm not going to get that excited about a trailer. I'm not going to get that down on a game because of a trailer. But this looked like more or less what I expected, I guess. It's a Western. I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to be psyched about, especially. I don't know. Maybe it was just that I – 
It's a combination of things. I found the player model to be like not that compelling. That's like yeah. a nitpick. That's very petty. Yeah. But it was like, you know, for me, when I look at a game like that, when I what I want to see from a game trailer for for a Rockstar game is more of what I saw from the teaser trailer. I want to see the world. I yeah, want to see bears, right. you know, hurdle gurgling through the woods. I want to see birds flying. I want to see, you know, the the way the landscape looks when you move through it. Mm-hmm. That's really what I care about. Uh, the story is great. The story is fine. Rockstar always does, you know, they, they're one of the best um, companies at uh, weaving story into their gameplay mm-hmm. that are working in the space. But um, I just care about the immersive qualities. I want to see what this world is like when I move through it, when I choose to move the character through it. And so teasing the story in this kind of really, in this extremely milquetoast kind of way mm-hmm. just didn't do anything for me at all. Yeah, it, it seems sort of generic Western to me in, in the, the main plot lines. I mean, it's a it's a gang. It's a bunch of outlaws. It's Arthur Morgan. It's set before the events of the first game, which is kind of interesting because the first game was kind of about the winding down of the Old West and modernization and technology and trains and the end of that kind of cowboy lifestyle, whereas this is flashing back to the heart of that. So I don't know what the themes will be, whether it will have the same sort of resonance to it. But I mean, I was excited for this game. I'm I'm not really any less excited or more excited, I guess, than I was when I woke up this morning. It's 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 something that I don't think uh, my opinion, my anticipation level will be moved all that much until we have our hands on it, until it's actually right around the corner. Same. All right. So let's bring in our colleague, Victor Lukerson. The SNES Classic is out today. Not that you can get one unless you managed to reserve one a while ago, which you probably couldn't do. But our colleague, fellow writer at The Ringer, former podcast guest, current podcast guest, Victor Lukerson, did manage to get his hands on an SNES Classic. And he sacrificed his body and brain to SNES Science earlier this week. He did a marathon. He played all 21 SNES Classic games for almost an hour apiece. Took him almost a day. He lived to tell the tale to us right now. Victor, hello. Congratulations on surviving this ordeal. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. It really, it really was an ordeal. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> so describe what the plan was, how you went about it, how you set yourself up for this marathon. Sure. Uh, so first of all, I was super hyped that we were getting an SNES Classic. Obviously, the NES Classic was really hard to get, so I was excited when Nintendo offered to send us one, but I didn't really want to do like a normal review because I don't really write game reviews. So I thought that uh, trying to do a marathon might make uh, my approach stand out a little bit more. And mm-hmm. I've also just kind of felt in general that I just find it sort of hard to like have fun with games now compared to when I was younger. I don't really know exactly why that is, whether that's because I'm just getting older or games are designed differently. I don't know. So I thought maybe playing, trying to play games for you know, 18 to 20 hours consecutively, I might be able to sort of even go beyond, wring, wring all the fun possible out of a game, basically, and see what's left. Um, mm. So I thought that'd be an interesting approach. And I decided to t- try to do them an hour each. I um, put them in random order. So I, I didn't want to end up resenting Yoshi's Island because it came at the very end, wow. you know, alphabetically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I did them in random order. And yeah, I started at 8 a.m. Uh, in my living room. Uh, yes, Wednesday morning, and I took a 15-minute break, I guess, after every fifth game. But for the most part, I was just going through them one by one. Um, and it was it, – it oscillated between some of, some, some of them being fun, some of them being really frustrating. Like games I liked – I thought I liked a lot, I ended up hating. Games I had no idea, but I ended up enjoying a lot. So, you know, it was a, it was a roller coaster for sure. <laughs> what was the worst game? What was the worst experience, worst possible experience on the SNES Classic? The worst game was for sure uh, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, which <laughs> <laughs> I've never played before. I, got, I, got, I know those games are hard or whatever, but A, I came to that one. It was like towards the end of the experience. So this is probably like 
maybe like midnight on Wednesday night, and I'm already super tired. And this game is just like the cheapest shit ever because when you like open the first level, there's like five zombies approaching you and like a skeleton throwing fireballs at you. And I just did not have like the mental acuity to deal with that. <laughs> so I, I basically just spent an hour like dying on the first level, like again and again and again. <laughs> Yeah. So what was your original SNES experience? Had you played most of these games? Did you have the console in the past or were you coming to this fresh for the most part? Uh, it was mostly fresh. I was a Genesis kid way back in the day mm. um, before becoming a N- Nintendo convert for the N64. Um, so I played some of the bigger ones, like the Mario game, the Super Metroid, either like during re-releases or on emulators. Um, I would say maybe I'd played like a third of the games before and... The other two thirds were totally new to me. Um, and they also, they did not have my fav- favorite SNES game, Chrono Trigger, which is a little bit disappointing. Yeah, that was disappointing. Um, yeah. yeah, no, like I played uh, Final Fantasy VI is on there. I guess it's Final Fantasy III for the American version. So that game's cool. But, and they also had Secret of Mana, which is another SNES RPG. But when I was playing a Space Secret of Mana, I was pissed off because the character in that game actually kind of looked like Chrono. And I was like, why didn't I have Chrono Trigger in this? And this, that'd be way better. <laughs> yeah, I, there's probably no way to please everyone with a, a console that has as big a library as the SNES did, but right. the, the lineup's pretty good with a, a few notable omissions here and there. Yeah, but so tell us about the hardware and the interface and everything because it looks tiny and very cute. Yeah, no, it is really small. It'll fit in the palm of your hand, which I was surprised by the size of it. Um, and it's also extremely analog. Like, kind of one of the funniest things I thought about it was um, the reset button is like a sliding button. You actually physically slide, and it actually squeaks when you slide it, <laughs> which is like <laughs> definitely a very specific thing I remember about, about my Genesis back in the day. So that was actually my most nostalgic moment was like hearing the squeak of the reset button. Um, so, I mean, the hardware for sure is uh, just a mini- miniaturized SNES, basically. And then when you actually boot up the system, um, it's like extremely fast. So you go right to the main screen of like having 20 games that you can slide through. Um, all the games boot super quickly. And for every single individual game, you can uh, have four suspended save points. Uh, so I guess that's like what, like 80 save points total. So it's pretty easy to like pick up and play with it, um, which is good because a lot of those older games don't actually have save systems in them. So that makes it a lot more convenient yeah. for uh, a modern user. How did you find the uh, controller? Because, man, I I played a little Mario Kart against some people in the office, and um, we got two systems, by the way. We should should we should we go into this, Victor? Should we talk about this? <laughs> should we talk? Our, like our like light man- manipulation? Let's talk about this for a second. Let's we'll just talk about this for a moment. Um, okay. The, the SNES, the Nintendo people contacted us, and we're like, we have, we can send you a review copy. Where should we send it? And we agreed that Victor, this is his beat. Victor should get it. Victor was like, send it here. And then the next day, the system arrived at the LA office. So right. we emailed them like, yo, what happened? And they were like, oh, mistake. Here's what we can do. We'll send you one to Victor. You know, we'll send one to Victor, but it won't get there till Wednesday. It was like really not a scam, but it felt like one. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, think, I feel like I feel like the key was that when we knew they'd messed up, we didn't give them too much information. We were just kind of, like, oh, where is the second? In, where is the second uh, SNES? Uh, what? What? Know. Do you know? Where could this thing? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was playing. Uh, I was playing Mario Kart in the office. In the office, on the office television, one of the office televisions, and man, um, maybe it's just because uh, you know Mario Kart Deluxe on the Switch is like incredible. And I'm just so used to those controls. But the controller, it took some time to get used to the kind of clunkiness of the old style controller. And it's, to my memory, basically the exact same controller. Right, yeah. This is actually the first time I've actually used a, well, yeah, I think it is. I've never used an actual old school SNES controller. I played all those games either on Game Boy Advance or like on emulators. Um but I will say playing something like Mario Kart or F-Zero where I'm more used to like the more modern versions where you have analog control, yeah. that's going to be a big adjustment to try to go back to using a D-pad for these racers that need like really precise movements. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we had Jason Schreier on to talk about the NES Classic, he was saying that a lot of the games from that era, we remember them fondly, but they don't really hold up that well, just because you go back and they're buggy and glitchy and the controls aren't well implemented and they don't look good. But it seems like SNES or the 16-bit generation is kind of when games modernized enough that we can play them today and they hold up pretty well. Did you have that experience generally as you were going through these games? I mean, like, you know, Link to the Past and and Super Metroid and the classics that are in this package are are still classics that I think stand the test of time, at least as as recently as I've played them. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I definitely agree with that for the most part. Um one really nice experience was playing Yoshi's Island because mm. that game is like has this like a has this like tropical theme. And the graphics look really nice, and it was just a very nice like tranquil uh, vacation in the middle of this like arduous marathon, you know. So later in the later in the day, I was always like, man, I wish I could go back to Yoshi's Island. That that felt so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will say that while most of the games hold up pretty well, Star Fox is a hot mess. That game just like wow. I don't know what. <laughs> I was not, I didn't play Star Fox as a kid, so I don't know what people thought of it at the time, but that is like a mess of polygons. It's a disaster to look at. And that was one of my least favorite things to have to experience. Did you play Star Fox 2 too? Because that's, this is the first time that that previously unreleased game is seeing the light of day, right? Yeah, Star Fox 2 is interesting because you use the R-Wings, but also you can turn the ship into like a bipedal tank uh, type machine. So you can basically have like both land and air combat. Um, but the land combat is kind of janky since, I mean, there were no analog sticks then, so the camera control is like with the L and R buttons, so it's pretty slow. Um, but it's basically more Star Fox and more messy polygons, uh, but now with like land action. Uh, so I was, I was not a huge fan of either of those two games, to be honest. What was like, what, why would somebody buy this system? Like, what, who is this for? Um, the, when the original one, when the original, um, NES console, mini NES came out. Um, There was a lot of hype. And then a lot of the reviews were like, these games suck. Um, Right. (laughs) And it just seems like with emulators today, I'm not sure, other than the kitsch factor of like having it on your desk, um, why somebody, why would you have this thing? Who's this for? I mean, I definitely think it's another one of those things where like the Nintendo hardcore fans. I guess it's both for like both their hardcore fans and also like their lapsed fans who are just nostalgic for that kind of device, you know? I mean, if you think about trying to get these games legally, I think usually when Nintendo sells SNES games, they're like seven or eight bucks. And this thing is $80. Yeah. So, I mean, there's enough, there's enough classics here that you're getting them for about half off compared to what Nintendo sells them for legally, uh, typically. And I mean, I think the NES Classic kind of proved that a lot of people kind of like are really fond of those old shitty games, basically, you know? Like, they just kind of remember that from their childhood, and they want to, like, experience that again. So, I mean, I think Nintendo's proven again and again over time that, like, their nostalgic brand is extremely strong, and yeah. every, a lot of people have a really deep bond with that company that they can that the company can exploit uh, pretty successfully. Yeah, so obviously the release gap between the NES Classic and the SNES Classic is a lot shorter than the release gap between those two original consoles. So we're catching up with Nintendo's present here. Do you expect this to continue? Like how long can they keep doing this? Do you think an N64 Classic would have a market? (laughs) And then are we getting to GameCube Classic while we're still playing switch i mean at some point we're gonna catch up here so i i wonder whether that gap will continue to close or whether they will give it a rest for a while yeah i don't know i feel like i feel like they can't do gamecube classic because a the gamecube is really small already yeah. and b the gamecube was a, was a failure so i just don't see that happening but yeah i don't know in 64 would be interesting that was a especially in america like a lot of people are like super nostalgic for the big games in that system um but I guess I'm more curious about when they're going to add all these old games to the Switch. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. from, I think it, I, like if I if I if I had not been sent this thing for from Nintendo, I would have like not bought it. I'd much rather be able to just get like Super Metroid and Chrono Trigger for like ten bucks on Switch versus like having to get another device to plug into my entertainment system. You know. So I'm really waiting for the Switch games for the games to come out on Switch later. What keeps Nintendo from doing that? Like, what? Why? It seems like such a no brainer. To literally 
anyone who knows anything about video games, plays video games, likes Nintendo, doesn't like Nintendo. It just, they have such a strong brand affiliation with those games. Um, people obviously have like strong nostalgic feelings toward those games. And why don't they do that? Yeah, I don't know. I always get the sense that Nintendo is sort of like trying to have something in their back pocket for when they screw up, basically. So like <laughs> the Switch is like killing the game right now. Like it's like sold out everywhere and doing much better than anybody thought. So I could imagine maybe if the Switch was doing worse, they would have been scrambling to get these old games on the system to like prop it up. But now since they're already doing really well, they might right. be like, well, we'll just wait a little bit longer until we like really need this to like give the system some more juice later. I just always imagine yeah. them just like having having a in case of emergency plan, basically, for, at all times. Right. Yeah, they might as well milk us for money now with the classic consoles. And then, I don't know, maybe toward the end of the Switch's lifestyle life cycle or, or later in the Switch's life cycle, then you put all this stuff on the Switch and maybe then there's a another gold rush with that console. I mean, you might as well extract as much money as you can out of people if you're Nintendo because people will buy these games Lord. more than once. It's not like I got an SNES Classic, so when Super Metroid is on my Switch, I'm not going to get it again. People are going to get it again. So you might as well, I guess, sell it to us as many times as we're willing to buy it probably. Right. And I guess they do have them now through the online service. Isn't that right? They're doing some kind of like free games if you yeah. get into online, I think. Yeah, it's it's a little more limited right. than, than this. But, but yeah, that has to be the future, right? Like we're not going to be playing Xbox One Classic in 20 years from now, right? I mean, whatever the console is at that point, presumably – I don't know if we'll get to the point where you'll just be able to play everything ever made on one box because there are all kinds of hardware porting complications and rights that you have to straighten out. And there are advantages to companies in preserving exclusivity to certain things. But you'd think that just given the way all of entertainment and media is going, eventually we're going to get to the point where we really do have a legitimate gaming streaming service and I, I know there have been some attempts but something kind of comprehensive one day yeah i mean sony's definitely been the first uh, to sort of experiment with that and i definitely agree that i think like eventually everybody's gonna have to have something like that because like you said like you know netflix and spotify have already made that yeah. obvious for other types of entertainment but i also don't necessarily expect nintendo who has had a lot of problems with getting their online infrastructure together to be the people who spearhead that initiative, you know? Mm -hmm. So was the classic for you more of a pick it up and play everything for an hour, say, oh, that was fun, nice trip down memory lane, and then we'll move back to the present generation? Or do you see yourself spending a lot of time with these games and maybe replaying some of them in their entirety? Um, I don't know. I could definitely see myself... There is this one game on there... Uh, Kirby's Dream Course, which I had never heard of. Um, I assumed it was like a racing game, but it's actually like this weird miniature golf thing where Kirby is like the golf ball. Um, uh -huh. And anyway, it was just like surprisingly fun. And I could just imagine like on a Sunday afternoon being like, you know what? I'm really stressed out. I'm just going to play a little right. uh, Kirby golf. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I think for a lot of like the big hitters, like I've played Super Metroid and Link to the Past and that stuff before. So I guess it's nice to have them, but they're also not things that I was like clamoring to revisit at this very moment. Mm. Did everything seem like it did the first time you played it or like you imagine it might have been the first time you played it? Like when you booted up F-Zero, does it still seem super fast? When you boot up Contra 3, does it still seem overwhelming and bullet hell or or does some <laughs> of this stuff seem like this is dated and you've played better, prettier, faster versions of everything since then? No, I think the game's held up really well. I mean, I think uh, Super NES Sega Genesis is like one of the best generations and they sort of like perfected 2D design by that point. So like with, with F-Zero, for instance, that was actually one of the most fun games to play because, you know, the game starts up and, I mean, it looks pretty rough because it's so old, but when you're actually racing, it's like just as intense as you know, F-Zero GX, one of the more modern versions, one of the more modern games in that franchise. Um, 
So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I've always been a big defender of that generation of games, and I think for the most part, they still hold up really well. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about is the the, the graphics modes. Yeah, there's like uh, four by three. There's pixel perfect, and there's like this filter that you can put on that makes it look like, like a tube TV. Did you mess around with that stuff at all? I really didn't. I was really focused on uh, just trying to survive. This all right, survival. that's the end of this interview. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Um, but I mean, in general, I've never really been a big fan of widescreen for old school games because the stretching is not cool. So I'm always fine with having the uh, bars on the side of the TV because you get it, you get better image quality that way, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to explore what you said at the beginning a little more about how you're not getting the same satisfaction from games anymore. And I wonder whether going back to these older games helped you figure out why that is at all because we we have a record to sustain here of getting ringer staffers into or back into video games <laughs> and so if your enthusiasm is flagging we need to find a way to to prop it up again so did getting in touch with your 16-bit gaming roots help rekindle anything or clarify why you're not getting the same feeling from current games Maybe. I guess that's like, okay, so I think that playing those games sort of helped me realize that uh, fun is really contextual, I guess, because there were some games on there, like Super Metroid is a game that I love and I played a lot, but just at the hour I played it in the marathon and uh, how I was feeling, I just was like not having any fun at all, like going through that game again. Like it seemed really rote to me and just like, I was like almost like a robot playing it. Um, and there's other things like the Kirby game I was talking about where that, that, that seemed stupid as hell when I booted it up, but that was one of the ones where like my little alarm went off and I like, wasn't like, like I was like, I was like disappointed when the alarm went off cause I wanted to keep playing it. Um, <laughs> so I think that's going through that many games that fast. It really sort of, it shows you like how like you can sort of like, you can find fun in a lot of different contexts and it's good to sort of like give a game another shot even if you don't like it the first time because it might be like it might have more to do with you than it does with the game i guess so i think having done that i might be a little bit more accommodating of some of the games that i sort of put down out of hand uh, right now Mm -hmm. okay well you can stay tuned to the ringer.com for victor's article about this and maybe some video content coming too you can find him on twitter at vluck Thank you, Victor, for coming on and for subjecting yourself to 21 hours or so of SNES Classic. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Yeah, it was great. All right, so we are joined now by Stacy Ponder. She writes about scary games that I am too afraid to play for Kotaku. You also may know her from her long-running horror blog, Final Girl, and her bio says her love of pizza. Hello, Stacy. Hello. 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 <laughs> so I do want to ask you about horror games and see if you can kind of coach me into playing one. But before we get to that, I initially wanted to talk to you because you wrote a retrospective last month about Night Trap, the notorious Night Trap on yeah. the 25th anniversary of that game's release for Sega CD. And you replayed it and I think maybe found it to be a, dif- a bit different from its popular perception or its outsized legacy. For anyone who is not familiar with Night Trap, what it is and what kind of impact it had on the video game industry, can you give us a summary? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big topic. (laughs) It's a big topic, yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting slice of video game history, for sure. Um, It's an FMV game, full motion video. So it used live actors in a kind of VCR sort of quality footage. Right. Uh, and it was it's a horror game where you have to trap these vampire creatures before they can kill all of the teens at the sleepover party. And it became the center of this sort of firestorm. You know, video games were going through a really big change at the time. Uh, before that, they were perceived as basically just for kids. Um, and video games were growing up and the players were growing up and, um, you know, the adults kind of pulled out the, won't somebody think of the children. Right. (laughs) And before you know it, there was a senatorial hearing about it. Um, 
about Night Trap and Mortal Kombat, uh, about how reprehensible they were and the violence and it was horrible for children and they should be banned and they're disgusting. And so because of all of that, that's why the video game rating system was born. Yeah. It's a Night Trap. So. Yeah. So there were congressional hearings and outrage and the ESRB and all of this came into being not solely because of one game necessarily, but Night Trap was the one that was very often cited. So what is the gameplay like and what is the plot like? Because <laughs> this is full motion video for anyone who missed that era. It was it was a special one. It, it's It's very special. It's all live actors. You know, they shot all of the game content on 35 millimeter film, just like a regular movie. Uh, and you play basically a special agent who sits in front of a bank of security cameras and you watch all of the different surveillance feeds. There's eight different feeds. And whenever one of the vampire creatures walks by a trap, you have to push a button and trap him. <laughs> and that's <laughs> kind of it. And the whole thing from beginning to end takes about 25 minutes. So it's uh, <laughs> not the most complex, really. But Is there like a, a legacy of, of this style of game gameplay-wise? We, we know about the supposedly adult content and the ramifications from that. But, I mean, when you play a modern game, is there any element of this type of game that survives in today, into today? Like, is this at all akin to a walking simulator or some more recent games that have FMV elements but are maybe a little less primitive than this was? <laughs> uh, there's a game I have not played called The Bunker, which apparently is FMV. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't tried that one, but I think FMV had its very brief window of popularity. And then everybody was like, wait, what are we doing? This is terrible. <laughs> and so that went away. But I think Five Nights at Freddy's is a phenomenon, basically. I don't even know how many sequels there are. And to me, that's absolutely a descendant of Night Trap. You know, you're watching a bank of security cameras and you're trying to stop these things from killing you. And, you know, it's, it's very similar. So... Mm -hmm. Before we get into horror games, let's uh, just talk about the horror genre for a second. Um, your uh, blog is called is called Final Girl. That's uh, the first time I ever encountered that term was in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, the kind of famed uh, cultural criticism book by Carol Clover. Could you just explain like the concept of the Final Girl? Sure. The Final Girl. It tends to be a slasher movie trope. Slasher movies are very formulaic. Um, like the pure slasher movies. And the final girl is basically the one survivor. You know, it, it the, the cast of characters gets whittled down, the killer kills them, and then it's just the final girl versus the killer. And usually she comes out on top. <laughs> what is she meant to represent, though? Like, what is, what is emblematic about the final girl? What is emblematic about the final girl? Um, I mean, I think just someone for the audience to identify with. It's just, it's interesting because it's a female, but females are more vulnerable, right, in horror movies. So it was kind of revolutionary that these women were taking care of themselves. You know, the best final girls didn't need to be rescued by anybody else. Uh, they were strong, independent women. <laughs> strong female characters, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So how does Night Trap fit into that before we get into other horror games? I mean, this game just recently got a re-release, which is why you had the idea to do this retrospective. It came out for PS4 and Xbox One, so you can play Night Trap. And presumably it was ported just because the name lives on in infamy. But having actually played it again... How did it look to your 2017 sensibilities? I mean, does it just seem crazy that this caused a stir or can you see why that was the case? I can see why it was the case at the time, just because of where video games were prior to that. This was 25 years ago. So, you know, games were just coming out of, you know, the Frogger era, basically. Mm. Um, so it was the first of its kind. Uh, so I could see where people would get up in arms over it. But now, I mean, when it was released and the ratings went into place, it was rated M for Mature. 
and now it's rated T for teen. Mm. Uh, like nothing, none of the content has changed. They've added more content. Actually, uh, there was a one of the deaths was of a preteen boy, and it was cut out of the original version of the game, and they restored it. And yet it's still rated T for teen. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you look at some of the games now and it's just, and horror movies and everything else. It's everything is so violent and bloody and explicit. And this is, there's really, there's no explicit violence in it. It's really benign. So, yeah. Is that the worst thing in the game from a, a ratings perspective, the, that death that you just mentioned? Or is there sexual content that contributed to it more or? They called it sexualized content because one of the girls uh, is in her nightgown, which Ooh, is above the scandalous. knee. Yeah. It's above the knee. And she's in the bathroom. And if you don't save her in time, the augers, that's what the vampire creatures are called, they kill her. And so that became, you know, to these Congress people, to the politicians and angry mothers, that was sexualized violence. Hmm. So, huh. but yeah, but there's no nudity. I mean, you know, you look at, Stuff like The Witcher and, you know, where there's right. – it's it's basically computer softcore porn. Mm-hmm. How much of this was due to just video games essentially being a very, very new medium? I mean, a year after this, there was a movie, Sharon Stone movie called Sliver that is has essentially a very similar kind of voyeurism mechanic where the, as this guy in a building is, has installed cameras everywhere. He's watching everybody. It was a 90s Sharon Stone movie kids could yeah. get into it ostensibly but still like that didn't sh- that didn't shock people whereas uh video games and fmv just uh you know parents didn't know anything about it right yeah nobody knew anything about it and this was pitched as this technology was pitched as a playable movie and right. if you if you watch the hearings um you know the politicians are saying that this game teaches children how to torture and murder women and it's like well, actually, the point of the game is to stop that from happening. <laughs> like, none of them had played the game or watched anyone play. They admitted to that. One of the game's creators afterwards said, you know, can we talk about this? It sounds like you didn't play the game. And the response was, I don't need to play the game to know it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Right. You're saying you know? Congress was not fully informed yeah. about the you issues know, of the day? And just spouting off? Yeah, it's 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 out Times of character for them. For sure. This was, I mean, this was post like Duke Nukem by a little bit, I guess. I mean, there were probably games out with more questionable content, maybe, but they looked like 2D sprites kind of graphical style. So maybe that was part of it, just the shock of suddenly video games look like movies or look like real life. And we're seeing that more and more now, obviously, as graphics get more and more realistic. But back then, you could always distinguish between a video game and a movie or a TV show. And this blurred the lines more so than than most other games had before. Oh, absolutely. Like you look at, you know, the original, original Resident Evil, which came out after this, but the graphics, it's like the blood is square, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, because <laughs> it's all pixelized, whereas this was real people. And so I guess they were worried children couldn't tell the difference. It was like, you know, I guess they were just worried about kids watching horror movies or something and participating in them. So So Night Trap re-release, interesting as a historical artifact, I guess, not so much as a a game or something that will shock you in 2017 if you're trying to impress your parents with your rebellious streak or something. There's (laughs) probably better options out there than Night Trap on (laughs) PS4 and Xbox. I would say so, yeah. I mean, I love it, but then I'm a fan of. I mean, it, it plays like the like a gore-free B horror movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just has that kind of vibe to it. So I love it, or at least, <laughs> I, or at least I, I think I do because the theme song's been stuck in my head for like two months now. So it could be like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, <laughs> maybe. But uh, yeah, I don't think hardcore gamers are going to find much to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So. Um, is how this is kind of like a callback to the question I was asking before, but like you can kind of see how the hubbub around this game and controversy was kind of in a direct line with the stuff that was going on in the 80s, culture war stuff around heavy metal and PMRC um, campaigns against, you know, music lyrics, um, just various stuff, uh, you know, youth culture stuff that parents 
didn't necessarily understand or weren't necessarily up on. Um, can you draw a line between that and you know any kind of the culture war things that are happening today? Is 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 this part of an axis of kind of like broad politicization of culture, um, or is this just kind of like a weird footnote of a th- a thing that happened like once long ago? It's I th- I think it's almost more of a footnote, and I'm not sure why that is. If society has just if you want to call it evolving. Uh, we've just now it's video games are trotted out as evil when there's a school shooting, you know, and then they bring up Grand Theft Auto. But back then it was just video games and heavy metal and Dungeons and Dragons and all of these things were like satanic devices <laughs> that were influencing the minds of children. And I just think we've kind of hopefully progressed past that, maybe. Mm hmm. Maybe. Into into various other <laughs> into various right. other forms of politicized yeah. culture. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But or we just don't care about children anymore. You know, it's <laughs> it's one of those. So <laughs> it's but it's like it's anything else. It's like sitcoms, you know, once upon a time, you know, a sitcom couple had to sleep in separate beds because that was, you know, it was too scandalous for them to sleep in the same bed. And now it's it's like who knows what's going on? It's mm-hmm. just we've just evolved as a society, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, what was your origin story as a player of scary video games? Assuming it was not Night Trap that got you into the genre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it just came out of uh, you know I grew up loving horror movies, and then video games came along, and I loved those. And so, to find out that some of these games were like two great tastes tasting great together. Mm-hmm. I was in for sure. Mm-hmm. So anything horror, like I'd pick it up. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had your sometimes colleague Luke Plunkett from Kotaku on the show last winter. And he, like me, is someone who gets scared of scary games. And we were just kind of trying to talk through that together. I don't know that we necessarily arrived at any kind of epiphany. I have not suddenly started playing scary games since then. (laughs) Can you give me any tips? I mean, have you ever struggled yourself with scary (laughs) games or was this just never an issue for you? Oh, no, it's it's an issue. Absolutely. But I I think it's an issue for me, probably the way it's an issue for you. But the difference is probably that I enjoy it, Uh even if it's torturous at the time. Mm. You know, I still that's what I'm looking for. Like, I want to be scared. And so sometimes a game will come along and I'll try to maximize the scares by like playing in the dark and using my headphones and then that sounds just like something ben is, is can't wait to do yeah. ben can't wait to play in the dark with headphones completely enshrouded in darkness with a very scary game pounding in his ears ben when are we doing this this is great content if we put a, if we put you on camera doing this this is incredible content uh, it's gonna be like one of those japanese game shows where they have like someone in an elevator and they open the door and someone runs yeah. screaming and it's like night vision and they're terrified. That'll be me. So yeah, I, I don't have the constitution for that. Well, Stacy, what is your scariest gaming experience? Do you think? Probably anything with several uh, volumes of Silent Hill. Like mm. the first one, which I mean, now you look at the graphics and it's like, my God, it's just, it looks like origami you know it's Uh just all angles and pixels and everything (laughs) and that scared me so bad at one point that i turned it off and quit playing for a while (laughs) like okay and then pt uh the i love pt pt (laughs) was scary man oh my god i wish they that it got made Oh, I know. I don't know if I could handle it, though. I Like, I honestly don't. It was, man, just walking through the hallway was uh, very scary. Oh, yeah. No, that was one where I was like, oh, this is going to be so scary. Turn off the lights, put on the headphones. And the next thing I know, like, I took off my headphones and I slammed on my controller and I pointed at my TV and I was like, F you, F you, PT. <laughs> and then there was one point I was trying to walk down a hallway and the ghost was at the other end and... I wasn't crying, but absolutely like fear water 
came out of my eyes. Pure, pure water. water. Pure water. Yeah. And so I just had to stop. And then I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? But I guess I like it. I don't I don't know. Yeah. So do you have any coping mechanisms? Like will you concede to the game and put the lights on or or take your headphones out and go for some intermediate experience? I do. I play. I have to take breaks. Like even with PT, which I think you play through PT, it's maybe what, like 20 minutes or something. But it probably took me four hours because it was just play for a minute, walk away, <laughs> like, you know, turn the lights on, pet my cat, remember there's good in the world <laughs> and then go back to it kind of thing. I just I can't just play it all the way through. Absolutely. What's the I mean, this is kind of this is like a critical th- theory question but in your mind what is the appeal what why do we like scares what is it about scares whether it's uh, jump scares in movies or um, pranks or scary video games what is it about those things and seeing people go through those experiences um, that draws us to them I think well one of the popular theories is that it's very cathartic you know, you're you're experiencing death in a way, but you're also very safe because you're in the movie theater or whatever. Um, so it's just a way to sort of ex- explore <laughs> gruesome violence and murder without being gruesomely murdered, I guess. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's a sort of adrenaline thing, kind of. And it's just, you know, my I enjoy that endorphin rush. And that sort of thing. And some people really hate it. You know, some people like to jump out of airplanes or eat hot peppers or whatever people find (laughs) thrilling. I don't know. (laughs) You know, and so for me, it's that. Like, I just, I like the tension of it. Mm. I like to be scared. It's mostly the fear water for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Comes right out of the eye holes. You know, I'm not crying. I'm just scared. What are your favorite Recent horror releases or most anticipated upcoming ones? Oh, I loved Resident Evil 7. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, was good. That was, was re- good, Ben. You should play that one. Mm. Yeah. That was really good. I, you know, I played that one with VR. Somebody and it wasn't as scary. Oh, man, I got to try VR at some point, I guess. Maybe when I reach the end of my life and I'm like, you know, I had a good run. I can go anytime. <laughs> then I can go for the VR because I don't know how I'll make it through without you know, a heart attack at least, right. but it's so cool. So yeah, Resident Evil, I thought was fantastic. Absolutely. And I even, I enjoyed the Friday the 13th game. Like sometimes I'm really easy to scare. I just need darkness and sound out in the darkness. If I don't know what it is, that's scary to me. That's mm-hmm. all I need. Yeah. Well, so. speaking of Resident Evil, I wanted to close with a question about that because just before we started talking, you published at Kotaku a ranking of Resident Evil games by the number of ports they have received. And I don't know if this is the most ported franchise ever. I mean, it's definitely up there. There are a lot of installments, of course, and they've been ported a multitude of times. And the occasion for your ranking this was Resident Evil Revelations, which came out on PS4 and Xbox One last month. It's coming out on Switch in November. And yet, according to your intensive research here, only ranks third on the Resident <laughs> Evil port rankings with eight platforms. So can you give us the the top Resident Evil ported games? And if you have any theory about why Resident Evil is ported so frequently. Maybe there are multiple explanations, but it's kind of incredible just how long the lifespan of a Resident Evil game is. Oh, it's insane. And, you know, this was just a ranking by the number of platforms. Like, I didn't even get into the number of versions. You know, like the original Resident Evil game, there's the DualShock version and there's the director's cut. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even get into all of that. So there's more out there. There's way more out there. It's just, it's madness. It's like Resident Evil uh, 4, which is at the top. That's the grand champion. Yeah, 12 it platforms. 12 <laughs> platforms for a game that came out, what, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah. So it's just, every, they just... I get, people must be buying them. That's the only thing I can think of. It's just financial. I've never heard of, I know you had never heard of some of these platforms. Resident Evil 4 came out on Zebo. What? <laughs> and something called yeah, Owl? Zebo. <laughs> yeah, 
again, there's like, I mean, like there will be, it'll be one of three games on this random console that appeared in Brazil for 20 minutes, you know, and somehow there's a Resident Evil game on it or a, a watch that came out, you know, in South Korea. It'll be on that. It's just... <laughs> It's just insane. There are consoles you've never heard of. It's just it's madness. Do you think it's, it's that madness. the gameplay holds up particularly well? Or is there just such a dedicated fan base for the series? Or is it just that Capcom is extremely aggressive about porting this thing everywhere they possibly can? It's probably all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that I haven't bought the same Resident Evil game for several platforms because I absolutely have. I used to buy, once upon a time, I used to buy consoles for Resident Evil games. I would trade in a bunch of stuff and then come home with a GameCube just to play Resident Evil, you know. So, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not going to buy Revelations even though I had it on Xbox 360 and PS3. <laughs> but now the graphics are like... Maybe a marginally better. So they're just fun to play. And I think fans of the series are hardcore fans of the series. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, I envy your bravery. I wish I had it. I wish you could teach it to me, but fear water forever. So you can read Stacy at Kotaku. You can find Final Girl at finalgirl.rocks. Stacy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks. Okay, that will do it for today. Jason, I'm starting to sense the onslaught of the holiday sense season. It. I don't know if you can feel Already. it coming. It's not even October. It's coming. Yet. It is coming so soon. We started this podcast around this time last year, right? I don't know exactly what our one-year anniversary is, but we started right in the midst of a ton of high-profile releases. And so for a while, it was like we had a giant game to talk about every single episode. And that hasn't been the case, but it is about to be the case again because we are almost there. We're playing Cuphead right now. Maybe we'll have some thoughts on that next week. Destiny is out, obviously, and it's just really every week after that, there is something coming. So much. Middle Earth, Shadow of War coming. Oh, my God. I played that at the Microsoft event here in in Venice, and it was freaking awesome. Yeah, there's... I don't normally say stuff like that, but it was like... I just love that style of gameplay Mm -hmm. also. Yeah, and South Park's coming, Assassin's Creed Origins, which I, I think I might actually break my Assassin's Creed not playing streak and and get into this game, I think. After they took a break, I'm willing to give it another shot. Then, of course, Super Mario Odyssey is coming out in a month from now as we record this. Wolfenstein, Call of Duty, Horizon Zero Dawn DLC. It's just going to be Battlefront 2, Xenoblade. It's going to be just nonstop. We're going to have... Man, Battlefront 2, I cannot believe they sucked me in again. And they got me again. uh, I'm going to buy this game again, and I hated the first one. (laughs) There's so much more content in this one. They have the graphs and the charts to prove it. And our guest from earlier this week, Walt Williams, lent his signature writing style to it, so I'm looking forward to it. All right, so we will be back. Same place, same time, next Friday. You've been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network.